Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Over the next few moments, uh, a little bit with you from God's Word. You know, tomorrow in Christian tradition uh, is Palm Sunday, right? That's the day that is um, acknowledged when Yeshua rode into Jerusalem, came in, was proclaimed as the King of Israel, called Palm Sunday because in honor of his kingship, many came and placed on the roadway that the donkey that carried him had led him down. They put palm branches on the roadway because in Jewish tradition, the way that kings were hailed was by the swinging, the swaying, the moving of palm branches. In the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a festival celebrated in the fall, which honors God as king, everyone comes to the synagogue with lulav or palm branches, and during the course of the service, it is waved before the Lord during times of worship and prayer. In the book of Revelation, when you uh, read what the presence of God's throne looks like. It says that around his throne, there are myriads and myriads of people, and they carried in their hands palm branches as they acknowledged the Lord as the king of all kings. And so on Palm Sunday, on that first day of the week, when Messiah rode into Jerusalem on this donkey, they placed palm branches on the road. They took their cloaks off, placed them on the road in honor of him as king. And they began to hail him, Hosanna, Hoshiana, which means save now. And they said, blessed is he, Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Baruch Habab B'Shem Adonai, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Others said, blessed to the king of Israel, the son of David. This was a heightened affair where the kingship of Messiah was acknowledged and proclaimed. What's really neat about this is that all four recorders of the life of Messiah record that event. In fact, all of them record most of what happens the last week of Yeshua's life. But they all record that event. But it's interesting to see the distinctions. If you were to look at Matthew and John's account, Matthew 21, John chapter 12, you would see that the focus is on the donkey that Yeshua rode upon. You'll see that there, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 are quoted because they are focusing on the fact that he fulfilled what the scripture had said, that the king would come lowly riding upon a colt, riding upon a donkey. Both Matthew and John focus on that. 
On the other hand, if you were to look at Mark's account, Mark 11 and Luke 19, Mark and Luke's account focus also on the donkey, but from a different perspective. Their focus, and they're the only ones that mention this, and for years we have all read it, I've read it, and I never step back to say, what is that about? Because in those two accounts, it says that the donkey that he sat upon was one upon whom no one had ever sat before. And so that sort of struck me. In the past, I've always taken it as, well, uh, this is a unique uh, passenger that the donkey has, and so therefore... The donkey is one that is sort of like a fresh donkey that's never had uh, anyone on its back before. I've heard some people say that this showed just how much Messiah was sovereign and in control because a donkey that never had anyone ride on its back before would not be submissive to have one sit on its back, and therefore it was a demonstration of his sovereignty. But you know, I don't think it's any of those things. Because I started to look up the phrase upon which something had not happened before. And there are three such passages in the Hebrew Scriptures. One is found in 1 Samuel, in which they placed the Ark of the Covenant on a ox uh, when the Philistines were returning the Ark back to Israel. They said, let's place it on an ark that is led by oxen that never had the yoke on it before. And of course, the ark was critical because it was placed in the Holy of Holies upon which was the mercy seat upon which one time a year the high priest would sprinkle the blood to make atonement for the sins of the people. The other two passages are found in Numbers chapter 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 21, in which the red heifer sacrifice, which was offered on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was to be of such a kind that a yoke had never been placed on its neck before. I think, and of course I'm not always right about things, but I think that the focus on the donkey not having one sit on it before was to draw our attention to the unique sacrifices that were made on Yom Kippur and the Ark of the Covenant upon which the blood of that red heifer was sprinkled. In other words, focusing on the fact that he was one who sat on a donkey upon which one had never sat before was focusing on the fact that he was coming into Jerusalem to give his life as an atonement for sin. And all of this is accentuated in what he does. In fact, he's coming on the first day of the week, which was when the lambs were brought in for the Passover sacrifices. So while he's on the donkey, the lambs are being brought in that are by his feet, by the donkey's feet. Josephus tells us over 250,000 lambs were sacrificed on a particular year. You can imagine how many lambs are coming up that roadway in Jerusalem. You can imagine how much time it would take to usher them onto the Temple Mount. You would imagine how much time it would take to sacrifice them, to kill them, to cleanse the altar, to cleanse the place, and to make sure it was presentable for Passover. Yeshua is riding in with the lambs that would be used for the Passover sacrifice. 
And he's on a donkey that's never been yoked before, never had a passenger on him before to further draw our attention to the fact that he's entered because he's our atonement for sin. Now, the other two writers, Matthew and John, they focus on this prophecy. And I wanted to turn your attention to it. I didn't read either of the New Testament accounts, John chapter 12, but that's a critical passage, as is the Matthew passage. But look to Zechariah. God remembers is the name of Zechariah. That's what his name means. And he wants to encourage the Jewish people to know that God remembers their needs. And in remembering them, he provides for them. And when you come to Zechariah chapter 9, the last six chapters, 9, 10, and 11, 12, 13, and 14, are the key chapters in the book of Zechariah that speak to the last days. In chapters 9, 10, 11, the focus is on the destruction of Israel's enemies in preparation for their glorification. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, it's a focus on the judgment that Israel experiences in order to be cleansed for the messianic kingdom they will then enter into. Israel is in both accounts, but I want you to look at this just very carefully. Perhaps we'll just take another five or ten minutes to share these thoughts with you, but they're, they're so interesting. I came saying I can't wait to point some things out to you that I'd like you to see. In chapter 9 of Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, just before Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, in verse 9 it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, the Jewish people. Behold, your king is coming to you. I love this. He is your king and he's coming to you. Not just to you, but he's coming for you. The Hebrew is quite clear that the term doesn't just mean he's going to arrive but that in his coming, he's going to be beneficial for you and to you. And certainly that's what we see in the account of Yeshua coming into Jerusalem. He's not just arriving, he's arriving for their benefit. He's arriving to meet their need. And they acknowledge him as their king. And so we see in Zechariah chapter 9, Behold, your king is coming, and look, he is righteous, He brings salvation. He has salvation. He possesses salvation. He doesn't merely provide it. He is it. It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He has become our salvation, our righteousness, our holiness. He is all of that for us. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. It is his righteousness that shines in and through us. We have no salvation in ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We can't do what is necessary in order to gain God's forgiveness. We can't earn it. We can't merit it. We can't do anything in which God is going to say, you know, I'm really impressed, and therefore I must save that one. That doesn't happen because none of us impress God. It isn't like we often are told that there is some kind of a balance system and that the more good deeds we put here that outweighs the bad deeds, we're in good company and God will look kindly upon us. The fact of the matter is, even if that was so, it's not true. Our bad deeds greatly outweigh our good deeds. In fact, we have to work hard at what it is to do good. It is very easy to do what is wrong. And why is that? Because we are all cast in sin. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the natural bent of our character is that which is contrary to the nature of God. So if there's a balancing system, we're in trouble. 
and we need something that can work in our behalf. So when he comes in, we're told, this is the one who has salvation. He alone is the one that can provide it. He's the one who possesses it. He is salvation in all of its entirety and all of its significance. And it's simply for us to accept it. It's simply for us to receive it. It's simply for us to repent and say, Lord, may, might you apply all of your glory to me? And while that may sound selfish, it starts with the individual that it might then move out to the rest of the world. In fact, that's why God chose Israel, not so that Israel alone would know him, but that the nations of the world would find him. That's why Yeshua, when he comes into Jerusalem, will say, my house is a house of prayer for all nations. The temple was meant to be a conduit, a place where not only the Jewish people would congregate, but all the nations of the world would congregate to worship the one and true God of the universe. My house is meant to be a house of worship and prayer and acknowledgement of the true God for everyone and for all nations. And so he comes as one who's righteous, has salvation. The word here, he says, he is humble and mounted on a donkey. Humble's not quite the right word, the, or translation. The meaning here is the suffering one. It's not just speaking of his humility or lowliness. It's speaking of his sufferingness. It's speaking of his lack of defense of himself. He's coming to give himself. He's coming to suffer. As Isaiah 53 says, the suffering servant. So he comes as the one who is salvation. He comes who is the one who is righteous. He comes as the one who alone is king. He comes as the one who alone is suffering in our behalf. He is our atonement for sin. He is our full covering for our sin. It is fully the grace of God. And he's mounted on a donkey so that you would recognize. By the way, this is something I just learned as well. Do you know that of all the kings of Israel, from Solomon to Zedekiah at the end, not one, not one is ever spoken of as riding on a donkey. The only king of Israel who is presented as riding on a donkey is here in Zechariah 9 and in the New Covenant records. So it's very easy to figure out who our ultimate king is. He's not going to ride on a war horse. He's going to ride on a donkey. That's the one you're to look to who will be our ultimate king and our ultimate savior. Now you ask, why does Zechariah write this? Why does he present this at this particular junction? And this is where things are so amazing. Look at Zechariah chapter 9 one more time. He opens the chapter by drawing our attention. This is a little historical thing. I'll just take a few moments. Drawing our attention to the coming of the Greeks. Now, you know what's interesting here is that Zechariah is writing 520, about 520 uh, years Uh, before the time of Messiah. He's writing about 200 years before the time of the Greeks. Like Daniel, who's writing approximately the same time, give or take 50 years, but about the same time, they both write about the Greeks. That's why many liberal scholars say this had to be written after because the prophecy is so detailed. In fact, if you look at chapter 9 in uh, verse 13, you will see he mentions the Greeks 
by name. So it's not something we have to hunt for. It's right there, clearly stated. And look what he tells us. He's telling us of the attack that this empire is going to make on the Persians. The Persians are ruling right now, as Zechariah writes. And he's telling us that the Greeks are going to overrun the Persians. Hamat, Damascus, those are the front doors to the Persian Empire. But I want you to notice this. He says in verse 3, Tyre, the city of Tyre, which you could visit the ruins of today in Lebanon. But Tyre has built herself a rampart, heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. In other words, she's become very wealthy. But behold, the Lord will strip her of possessions, strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Now, in the interest of time, I don't want to go through this whole section, but he then tells us city by city that the Greeks will conquer as they approach Persia. And of course, they have to come through Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting here is he's telling us of this great king. He doesn't name him by name, but we know who he is, Alexander the Great. And he's telling us this great king is going to be victorious. And he's going to bring destruction to the great empire of the Phoenicians that is centered in the city of Tyre. We can't get into it all, but if you looked at Ezekiel 26, Ezekiel 28, and even this passage, the focus is on the city being destroyed and its stones and its timbers cast into the sea. Now, you have to understand That's like somebody prophesying the United States is going to be thrown into the sea. You and I would say that's just not going to happen. You have to understand that the Assyrians had tried to conquer Tyre. And they laid siege to Tyre for seven years and couldn't conquer the city. Later, the Babylonians attempted to conquer Tyre. They besieged it, get this, for 13 years and weren't able to conquer the city. Alexander the Great was the only one to conquer Tyre. He did it in seven months. How did he do it? I'm telling you, this is so amazing when you think of the writing of Scripture. Ezekiel 26, Ezekiel 28, Zechariah 9. The way that he did it was when he came into Tyre, Tyre had two sections to it. The old city of Tyre, which was on the main coast. The newer city of Tyre that was rebuilt was rebuilt on a little island off the coast, about a half a mile off the coast from uh, the mainland. So what did Alexander the Great do? Stone by stone, rubble by rubble, timber by timber, he took the old city of Tyre and began to create a causeway from the mainland to the island. Took him seven months. He put up siege ramps. He also confiscated ships and in seven months destroyed Tyre. But what's interesting is the city of Tyre literally was thrown into the sea. That's what Zechariah is seeing. Look at his words. The Lord will strip her of her possessions, strike down her power on the sea. Look at Ezekiel 26, 28. Over and over, he talks about her being thrown into the sea. Literally, the city was thrown into the sea. 
and Alexander used it. Now, before he attacked Tyre, he contacted Jerusalem. He contacted the high priest. Josephus writes this. And he tells the high priest, we need your help. Would you come as an ally? The high priest said, we made a covenant to Darius, the Persian ruler, and we cannot go back on our alliance with him. We cannot help you. At which point, Alexander was furious. And he said, when I make my way to Jerusalem, I will destroy you. That night, he goes to sleep. Josephus records this. As Alexander is sleeping, he sees in a vision a man dressed in white, purplish garments. On his head is a turban, and on his forehead it says, Holiness to the Lord. And God, Alexander said, spoke to him and told him, These are my people. You are not to harm them, but I'm going to give you the nations of the world. As Alexander went from city to city along the Mediterranean coast and then made his way up to Jerusalem, anticipating its destruction, what the high priest told the people of Israel is to dress in their finest regalia. All the priests dressed in white And the high priest dressed in his high priestly robes with the turban and all. And rather than wait for Alexander to get to Jerusalem, they all went out to meet him. And when the high priest came before Alexander, Alexander bowed down to him and told him that he would spare the city and he would provide for him whatever they would want and that they would treat him, they would treat Israel peacefully. Alexander's right-hand man said to Alexander, how is it that you bowed down to this man? And Alexander said, I did not bow down to this man. I bowed down to his God who made himself known to me in a dream and forewarned me not to harm this people and I will not harm them. And Alexander moved on and conquered the rest of the Persian Empire all the way to the gates of China, and Israel was spared. Now, that's what verses 1 to 8 tell us in Zechariah. And now in Zechariah chapter 9, chapter nine verse 9, the one that would ride on a donkey, he's saying, if you think Alexander is a great conqueror, if you think the one is going to take over all those cities, there is a greater king who is yet to come. That's what Zechariah 9, 9, and 10 is. Look for the greater king who will not come like Alexander to destroy and to maim, but will come in a suffering manner, in a way you would not anticipate or expect, in a way in which he will ride on an animal that no king of Israel has ever ridden upon and will do what no individual or king would ever do to give his life an atonement for sin. This is the Messiah that we serve. Is this not amazing? This is the Word of God that is true and consistent. The pieces fit together. And so we ought to be encouraged we're on the right track. We're on the right journey. We're on the right path. And we need to keep moving down that path in faithfulness and obedience to our King because He has salvation. He will save you. 
He will save me and he will save us. What's going on in your life? He will save you. What kind of righteousness do you need to experience? He will provide it. What kind of humility might we need to exhibit that we might be ones who forgive others of our sin? He will model it and empower us to do it. He's the one to follow. And if you never have followed him, if you've never acknowledged him, if you've never received him, if you've never seen him or accepted him to be your Messiah, you need to do that. Because there's salvation is in no other name except the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. There is no other God but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there is no other religious text that tells us the truth, but the Torah and all of the other parts of God's word, including the Brit Hadashah. We need to humble ourselves. It took me 17 years old when I came to know Yeshua as Messiah. All of us come at different times, but we all need to come. And now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to come that you might have life, have it more abundantly, have it eternally. Have it more richly, have it more meaningfully. Father in heaven, we do pray that as your word has been shared, that it might do its work in speaking to the hearts and minds of all who have come. Lord, I pray that if anyone is here who doesn't know Messiah, he or she might come to accept him and to know him and to acknowledge him and to give praise for him for he alone is our king. While we are all praying, if I'm just going to ask very quickly, if anyone here would like to invite Messiah into their life in which they have not so done before, I'm just going to ask you, raise your hand, just put it down, and I'll pray for you. And I'll say, Lord, might you move upon this individual's heart in saving grace. So if there's anyone who feels they need to do that, um, just raise your hand quickly and put it down and then I'll pray for you and we can pray together and talk afterwards. If there's anyone who is saying, you know, I need to really walk more circumspectly with the Lord, especially this time of year, we're getting ready to celebrate Purim. We're getting ready to acknowledge the resurrection of our Messiah next week. There's anyone like that, just raise your hand, put it down and we'll pray for you. Indeed, I'll pray for you. And then afterwards, you'd like to come forward, let's pray together. It's wonderful to talk to our Lord, to commune with him, and to pray to him, and to hear his voice. So, Father, we praise you, we glorify you, and we thank you for your marvelous grace, your goodness and kindness. May your word inspire us, and may the word encourage us to walk faithfully before you. We pray in Yeshua's name. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.